This is not the media. This is hell. White supremacists and those affiliated with white supremacist organizations have joined law enforcement provoking the racialized violence within policing that is at the heart of today's current protests. The Department of Justice and the FBI is fully aware of this undermining of policing by white racists who attempt to recruit other officers to their groups, but neither agency is doing a damn thing to weed out racist neo-Nazi and neo-fascist cops. The FBI and Justice have also been fully aware of cops in Portland, Oregon, working with armed white supremacists who have repeatedly attacked constitutionally protected rallies and protests with impunity as the cops look the other way. So it should be no surprise to anyone that we are seeing the kind of violence we are seeing in Portland with the cops allowing as many as 600, if not more, armed white supremacists onto the streets of Portland last week. We will learn exactly how much white supremacists and their organizations have joined in with the police when we speak in a few with fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice's Liberty and National Security Program, Michael German, who wrote the article Hidden in Plain Sight, or I should say, who did the report, Hidden in Plain Sight, Racism, White Supremacy, and Far-Right Militancy in Law Enforcement. That was posted at the Brennan Center's website, brennancenter.org. Michael is a 16-year veteran specializing in domestic terrorism and covert operations in the FBI. He left the FBI in 2004 after reporting continuing deficiencies in FBI counterterrorism operations to Congress. Prior to joining the Brennan Center, Mike served as the policy counsel for national security and privacy for the American Civil Liberty Union's Washington Legislative Office. You can follow Michael German on Twitter at RethinkIntel. RethinkIntel. Alex, how are you doing? How's it been? Oh, uh, yeah, uh, you know, potty training my kid. Guess what I did today? Potty trained a kid? Almost caught a second guy trying to steal our mail. Ran down the stairs, just missed him, and realized that it was about 9.20 and I had to get back over here. So I'm not in a very good mood right now because all of those violent energies that I have in me are now bottled up. Uh, you would have thought that uh, offering to, or threatening to feed the first guy to pit bulls would have maybe got word around about don't get into this guy's foyer. But uh... <sighs> Oh, God, I hate... Uh... My girl was like, get back in here. I don't want you chasing some guy down the street barefoot while you're trying to beat him up. It's just, ugh, I hate myself. Putting people before profit since 1996, which turns out to be a horrible business model, this is hell. And you are listening to Completely Listener Supported This Is Hell. If you want to help us out with our horrible business model, please subscribe to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which we stream live every Friday morning at 10 Chicago time. New monologue from me, a classic interview un un unavailable anywhere else. If you subscribe now, you get over 150 Patreon podcasts. It's like a whole nother year of This Is Hell. On last Friday's podcast exclusively for subscribers, we feel featured an interview from 2013 in the NRA about the NRA creating vigilantes sound familiar when we spoke with award-winning historian Rick Perlstein and during my monologue I poured over the June 22nd issue of the National Enquirer and its cover story on protests against racialized police violence the coverage is sensationalized it's hyperbolic it's misleading it's fear-mongering and questionable experts who lack any affiliation other than doctor and terror expert and cannot be found any cannot be found anywhere online their experts can't be found anywhere online Yet somehow it all makes it into the Enquirer. In other words, it's exactly what Fox News would be reporting within a couple of weeks. Yep, Fox News is reporting on this uprising against police violence is exactly like the National Enquirer's. 
It's just that the Inquirer did it first. So if you want to know how Fox News will be framing a story in the future, check out the National Enquirer today, as that seems to be where Fox News gets their inspiration from a sensational, sensationalist tabloid, a scandal sheet that rag at the grocery store. Check out that it has as much journalistic integrity as Fox. But you can only hear our 2013 interview with Rick that is very prescient when it comes to predicting the NRA creating a generation of vigilantes. And my analysis of the Inquirer's reporting on the uprising only if you subscribe to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Thanks to the people who joined us on Patreon this week, including C, Noah, Madison, and Brett. Rick was also on the show last week to talk about uh, Reaganland, his new books. You can find that interview at thisishell.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed, live-stream podcast radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing, as always, Alex Jerry. Alex, please remind us, what's this week's question from hell, and do you have any more answers to that question? Uh, I got a bunch of answers, because we haven't answered any of them yet. Uh, what is this week's question from hell? It is, how are you pushing Joe Biden left? How the are person, you, oh, sorry, how are you pushing Joe Biden left? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins our new black on, or gray on black This Is Hell trucker's cap, which you can find right now at thisishell.com. When you click on support, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, email it to us, or direct message it to us via Twitter. How are you pushing Joe Biden left? How are you pushing Joe Biden left? Eric T says, with Marvin Hemeyer's bulldozer parody. Uh, Garrett says, my telepathic scanner abilities, and then posted a link to what I'm assuming is the movie Scanners. <laughs> I've never seen it. Uh, Jessica B says, throwing a lasso around him and giving it a good yank. Joshua F says, how dare you advocate violent pushing? We will coax him instead, not with a carrot, but by dangling a young woman who's recently used carrot-scented shampoo. The, Bi- the, the, the hair sniffing thing is going to uh, make a lot of appearances in these ones. A lot, a little bit, far too much. That's really got to, we got to move on from that joke. You ever notice someone's hair smelling good? Yes. Yes, very much so. Joshua L says, shooting him in the leg or some malarkey. Ronaldo M says, inviting him to join my Antonio Gramsci book group. We meet with coffee and donuts every third Wednesday. Hair spell smells especially good when it's not been used with like shampoos and stuff when it's just the natural smell of somebody's hair that's beautiful really nothing like uh, in the fall smelling the inside of your own knit cap <laughs> that's gross no no it's 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 nice or maybe it's just I, my I, I maybe it's my cap no i understand that uh, greg g says i was told that if uh if i was told that if i would only stop asking for things like <laughs> medicare for all and be fine with no real police reform so you can get elected that we'd magically do the right thing after so i guess by moving right he'll move left <laughs> uh Corey g says single payer now or the werther's factory gets leveled your choice old man <laughs> Dan T says, by enlisting a platoon of dog-faced pony soldiers to frog march him to the dock. Chris H says, I hired Corn Pop to stroke his leg hairs. How are you pushing Joe Biden left? How are you pushing Joe Biden left? Chris L says, I don't even have to. He just kind of had a stroke and fell over that way. Chris F says, from the right, on a cliff. Garrett L says, very carefully, Garrett. Jacob H says, "The the same way we tried with Obama and Cuomo in New York. It will work this time. Promise. How are you pushing Joe Biden left? Krimsky K says, I'm using right-wing magnets that repel the numbnut. Jack B says, asking him to commit to lowering the Medicare eligibility age from 64 to 65, <laughs> or from 65 to 64. Benjamin C says, with a pair of malarkey mittens. And Mark C says, as gingerly as I could, as, gin- as gingerly as I would his wheelchair. Alex will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. Following our guest, again, email us your answer to chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com. Post it at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or tweet it to us at thisishellradio. Your eyewitness to grief, this 
is hell. Thanks to everyone who sent me well wishes over the last couple of days after we posted that I was not physically able to do the Tuesday and Wednesday show. After completing all the writing and research for Tuesday's show on Monday night and preparing an interview with Bob Vitalis about how the Iraq war was not a war for oil, an interview we have rescheduled for Tuesday, September 15th, so look for that discussion. That will definitely be hellish for some Iraq war opponents. I woke up Tuesday thoroughly exhausted to the point that an ice-cold shower could not wake me up. I sat at my home office desk trying to review the questions I would ask Bob, and I could not focus mentally or physically. It's like everything I was looking at was the jumble. Since I returned from vacation last week, I've not been able to sleep, and I don't know why. I have some guesses, good educated guesses, but I'm not certain as I cannot make an appointment with my doctor due to, you know, global pandemic. But I've been in email contact with him, and my doctor and my girly both reminded me this week that every year, within a week or two from returning from vacation, I find myself at the doctor's office complaining about a myriad of illnesses, hand-and-mouth disease, flu, uh, respiratory ailments that require steroids, and then there's the injuries like cracked ribs and broken toes that have nothing to do with any illness, only clumsiness and drunkenness, and I've been trying to figure out why this problem with chronic fatigue and exhaustion happens seemingly every year when I come back from vacation. I think I may have figured it out. The dump of a cabin that we rent every summer, the resort my family has been going to for 65 years, unsurprisingly are less than adequate when it comes to having what you need to survive for an entire week for seven full days. Uh, the cookware is suspect with most of it seemingly Alzheimer's-inducing aluminum or some other metal conglomerate that was outlawed before I was born. There's no TV or Wi-Fi or radio, so if you want to have any connection to the outside world, you have to bring your own devices, which means the only real connection to the outside world is a radio, which we must bring. You have to include in your packing everything you need to live. There are no knives that have been sharpened in this century. All the dishware is plastic except one odd-shaped china serving tray. And the plastic wear is from my parents' home. And they moved out of that home uh, 40 years ago. I swear the only thing they have that we use is the salt and pepper, and the salt was empty when we arrived. And this year, with the global pandemic, we were told to supply our own sheets, blankets, pillows, bath mats to avoid any spread of the virus. Quite a resort. So packing all that stuff, we need to live for an entire week, and this year preparing to not go into town too often to mingle with unmasked locals at grocery stores, which meant bringing most of the food and beer required for a one-week holiday. That packing takes a couple of days, if not an entire week. The unpacking at the lake usually takes a few days as well, and we never feel quite moved in until we're there for been there for a few days and entirely comfortable until there's only a a couple of days left of vacation. The day before we leave, it's hard to motivate getting ready to go home, and we usually end up staying up late and getting up early in order to get out by the 10 a.m. Eastern deadline, 9 a.m. our time, which is not a hard deadline, and we usually don't get out until 11. After a six-hour drive back here to Chicago, and we then end up... Uh, then we then need to unload all that stuff again, and we have to walk it all up three flights of stairs to our apartment. By the time we've completed this arduous task I'm covered in sweat head to toes it's always seemingly hot and humid in Chicago when we get home from a cool mid-August trip up north knowing that I would be beat tired on Monday we scheduled our first show back for Tuesday last week every day since we returned I felt more and more tired until it caught up with me a couple days ago so that's my self-diagnosis exhaustion chronic fatigue brought on by moving an entire house of stuff twice in one week 
Not that I know that's the real problem. In fact, I have new guesses thanks to an article in Tuesday's New York Times, Dizziness Upon Standing, a warning sign. The disorder called orthostatic hypotension can lead to strokes, heart attacks, and even auto accidents and falls that can be life-threatening. And this week I became overly concerned about that hypotension and dizziness as a friend fell, uh, hit his head, and died freaking out me and my girly. Fabian Maxi was a regular at Carrie's Lounge downstairs. I've mentioned Fabian on the show before, and he joined us at our annual listener appreciation parties. I don't know if Fabian actually listened to the show, but he was always very supportive. Fabian would call me Chuckaluck, which I knew was a dice game, and have seen it played for years, including a big money game that would take place every morning in a McDonald's restroom stall across Michigan Avenue from Fox News when I worked at their local affiliate here in Chicago. Yeah, I worked at Fox. The first time I met Fabian, he was wearing a real sharp and expensive suit. I thought he he just kind of stuck out as clearly the best-dressed person at Carrie's Lounge. The next time I saw him, same thing, an incredibly well-tailored high-end suit that made everyone else look a lot more shabby than they usually do. By the third time I saw him so well-dressed, I told him and said, dude, you look great. Finally, I I asked around and found out that the reason he was always so well-dressed was he was a salesman at a high-end tailor on the northwest side and wore a different suit home every night. Fabian was full of insights, telling me that he stopped trusting the media when he was a teenager in the late 60s and early 70s. He told a story of how he was sitting on his front porch of his home, a few doors down from the home where... Fred Hampton, the Black Panther leader, was assassinated by Chicago police. The photographer asked the crowd of kids that they were what they were doing hanging out on a porch. Fabian told me that every one of the other people on the porch, all the other kids, were college kids home for the summer, mostly from historically black colleges and universities. Fabian said the next day their picture was on the front page of the Sun-Times with the caption, Jobless Negroes hang out on a porch on Chicago's west side. So, yeah, Fabian lost faith in the media that day. Fabian described how he remembers the Chicago Police Department having patrol cars in front of Fred Hampton's home every day and how he, like all his neighbors, worried for Fred's life, knowing that a black man fighting for equality was likely a death sentence. Fabian also played in the murder house of Fred Hampton. The police did not secure the building after the assassination of Hampton and Mark Clark. Leaving it behind, according to Fabian, as a big F.U. to the community. After the crowds had gone home, crowds that wrapped around the block to walk through the homicide scene to see exactly how brutal and deadly the police had been, Fabian and his friends would sneak inside and play. He remembered the bloodied house with vivid detail. I told Fabian how a friend of mine had contributed to the show, Flint Taylor, was one of the attorneys on the team that represented the Hampton family and got a record settlement with the city due to the cops' killing of Fred. He perked up. You know Flint Taylor? He's my effing hero, man. I promised Fabian I would introduce him to Flint at our annual party. Fabian showed up, walked up to me, and said, Where's Flint? I introduced him to Flint, and Fabian was head over heels. Fabian asked Flint for his business card. Flint said, Sure, and wondered if it was for legal reasons. Fabian said, No, I'm going to frame it and put it over my mantle. I'm pretty sure he got Flint to autograph it, too. While introducing Fabian to Flint, a listener stepped in and said, Were you talking about Fred Hampton? The listener then said he had just come from a reading by the author of The Assassination of Fred Hampton, which was written by Flint's colleague on the Hampton case, Jeffrey Haas. The listener then gave me a copy of the book and said he had Jeffrey autograph it for me. Fabian exploded. You set this up, Chuckaluck. Oh my God, you gotta be effing kidding me. This week, Fabian fell. 
hit his head, passed away. Without Fabian in this world, I can honestly say that something has become a little bit more accurate. This is hell. Coming up, white supremacists and their organizations have infiltrated law enforcement in the United States from coast to coast. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, how are you pushing Joe Biden left? The winner wins our new black This Is Hell trucker's cap with our logo in gray, which you can see right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answers to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, tweet them to us, or email them to us. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. It has been well documented by the FBI and Department of Justice that white supremacists and their organizations are the greatest terrorist threat to the United States. In fact, they have been more deadly than all other terrorist threats combined. Yet, for whatever reason, little to nothing has been done about rooting out white supremacists from policing. Here to help us understand what has happened to law enforcement fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice's Liberty and National Security Program, Michael German, wrote the report hidden in plain sight racism white supremacy and far-right militancy in law enforcement that was posted at the brennan center's website brennancenter.org michael is a 16-year fbi veteran specializing in domestic terrorism and covert operations he left the fbi in 2004 after reporting continuing deficiencies in fbi counterterrorism operations to the to congress michael also served as the policy council for national security and privacy for the aclu's washington legislative office and you can follow michael on twitter at rethink intel welcome to this is hell and thank you so much for being on our show michael thanks for having me i appreciate it so is it michael or mike what should i go with mike's fine okay cool so is uh, this is just a stupid question i thought of about five seconds ago is bad apples is that code or for white supremacists is, is are that who is that who the uh, the bad apples are are they white supremacists uh, certainly there are white supremacists in law enforcement and, and uh, it's on a spectrum, right? There are, are plenty of examples of police officers who are, have joined or, or were already uh, affiliated with white supremacist organizations. Uh, there are also others that are affiliated with organizations that are far right militant groups that may not. Uh, uh, proclaim, or proclaim that they're not racist, but they are involved in, in militant and illegal criminal activity. Uh, and then there are police officers who engage in openly racist conduct, whether this is trading racist uh, language on social media or in public or otherwise acting in a manner that uh, uh, displays their their racist uh, ideas. So uh, it, there's enough of them that the FBI warns its own agents that when they open domestic terrorism investigations of white supremacist groups or far-right militant groups, they have to be careful about who they share that information with in law enforcement because there's sympathy for these ideas among their fellow uh, law enforcement officers. So is... Is white supremacist or white supremacists and white supremacist organizations are are they prevalent within only the police aspect of law enforcement or are they throughout the entire justice system? So it, it, it's it's interesting and it's complex and I appreciate that question. I, I, and what I try to do in the report is explain a little bit 
about the history of white supremacy in the United States. You know, you have to understand, and, and I found this out by, as an FBI undercover agent, joining white supremacist groups, and you know, their, their view of our history is very different from what we learn in school, and, and in some ways more accurate. You know, the, the United States, the, the European colonization of the quote-unquote new world was a white supremacist project. Right. The idea that European whites uh, were were God given the, the, the power to go and dominate other lands, often inhabited by black and brown people. Um, so uh, the laws of the time were created to effect that white supremacist domination of, of the country. And you know, when, the, when we became the United States, Slavery was enshrined in law. The first policing in the United States were slave patrols or among the first policing and other labor labor controls uh, uh, was was what you know, these weren't necessarily crime control units, uh, but rather uh, ensuring the dominance of the, the most powerful groups economically. Um, and so law enforcement for hundreds of years in the United States was explicitly white supremacist because they were enforcing white supremacist laws. And this wasn't just in the South. Uh, uh, James Lowell has, has done an excellent survey of uh, what were called sundown towns. And these were towns all across the United States where uh, black people and other people of color were not allowed to be in town, much less live in town, weren't allowed to be in town after sundown. And these towns existed through the United States all the way through to the 1970s. Uh, so uh, the police in those towns were enforcing those formal and informal rules about uh, how, how people of color could travel through those towns. So again, this has never been a, uh, a, an anomaly. This is not some fringe element. It's foundational to... The, the creation of our nation. And I think you have to understand that to understand how it still affects government policies. And of course, those government policies are enforced by law enforcement at all levels. And you know, this happens not just in law enforcement, but in every aspect of our society. You know, if you look at corporate boards across the United States, they're disproportionately white. If you look at Congress, it's disproportionately white. If you look at the military, the officer corps is disproportionately white. Law enforcement itself is disproportionately white. Prisons are disproportionately black and brown. This, this isn't an accident. It's a remnant of the structural systems that we've built over the, the decades and centuries in this country. So I had like 55 questions written for you, and now all I have is follow-up questions to everything that you're saying. So uh, you, uh, you're you saying that... Uh, White supremacists embrace our white supremacist history, while it seems like everybody else wants to deny that white supremacist history. Do you think denial of our white supremacist history leads to promoting white supremacy? Absolutely. It, it perpetuates. It allows it to fester. I mean, it's fascinating to me. And, and you know, as an undercover agent at the FBI, I got these warnings personally, right? You're going to go into these groups and just keep in mind you might run across some police officers and 
So as you're setting up your alias background, you know, make sure it's tight because uh, police officers are going to have the ability to, to uncover it much easier than the average citizen. So knowing that when uh, after I'd left the FBI, this 2006 report, white supremacists infiltrating law enforcement uh, came out, this reinforced what I had been told. And then there was another report in 2015 that leaked. Uh, where it was a specific warning to domestic terrorism investigators that if you're investigating white supremacist cases, they're often linked to law enforcement. Uh, so obviously the FBI knows it's an issue enough to, to warn its own agents and to change its, its policies in how it works cases to avoid the problem. But none of those documents talk about how to protect the public from white supremacist, far-right militant, and racist police officers. And, and that's astonishing, right? If, if there was a document that the FBI produced that said Al-Qaeda had infiltrated US law enforcement, you can imagine there'd be a national initiative to find these people and make sure that uh, the public was protected from them. But even though these documents have existed for decades, there's no national strategy or, or effort to identify them. So we don't know how many, uh, you know, I firmly believe it's a small minority, but if you allow uh, a few bad apples to remain in the barrel, even though you know they're there, you're a pretty poor grocer, right? That, that uh, uh, the leadership in these law enforcement agencies should be uh, rooting them out and the federal government should be leading that effort. So what to you, what explains why they're not rooting them out? What is the their biggest challenge, their biggest obstacle, assuming that the problem is there is an obstacle in their way of rooting out this white supremacy? To you, what explains why the FBI and DOJ, fully aware of white supremacist infiltration into law enforcement, haven't addressed it? I, I think the same reason they haven't addressed the, the uh, documented racial disparities in every aspect of policing, from police stop and frisk, uh, to car stops, to uh, arrests, uh, charging, sentencing, length of, of sentence, uh, and particularly police use of force. I think they're still enforcing the, 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 the remnants of this white supremacist culture where part of their job is to keep what they call the social order intact. And, and uh, you know, the, the average police officer who's white and male, uh, when, when they go home at night, they don't fear white supremacist gangs marauding through their neighborhoods, uh, threatening their families. So it's just natural not to think of that as a primary concern. And so it can be pushed down the list. Uh, you know, it's interesting the way that the FBI looks. The FBI today can't tell you how many people white supremacists kill each year they because they don't even bother to keep that data now sometimes when a white supremacist kills somebody the fbi could characterize that as domestic terrorism because they have a racially motivated violence category in their domestic terrorism program in my cases were worked as domestic terrorism pro under the domestic terrorism program if they do that it's the number one priority in the fbi today uh, but they could call it a hate crime, and that's a civil rights violation. Civil rights violations are the number five priority. So just by labeling that, uh, 
crime something different, it goes down the scale and the number of resources that will be uh, uh, directed toward that investigation are reduced. Worse than that, the Justice Department has a policy that they defer hate crime investigations to state and local law enforcement, which normally could be fine. A lot more state and local police officers than FBI agents out there, except that they know that at least five states don't have hate crime laws and only a minority of states actually enforce the laws they have. So we know from federal reporting that only 12.6% of police departments acknowledge that hate crimes occur within their jurisdictions. And there are a number of uh, uh, obstacles to, to effective state and local pr pr prosecution of hate crimes. You know, one is simple. If, if you're a mayor of a, of a mid-sized city and you're trying to recruit businesses to your city and your police chief comes to you and says, hey, we had a record number of hate crimes last year. We're going to report this uh, to the federal government so they can publish it. You might say, wait a minute, you know, that city we're competing against, they don't report any hate crimes. Why are we reporting hate crimes when they aren't? It's going to hurt our ability to attract business to the city, right? So there's, there's natural disincentives to reporting at state and local. So this Justice Department policy deferring them to, to state and local prosecution is basically abandoning them. And, you know, we, there's some really interesting data that comes out of this. The Justice Department's uh, uh, Bureau of Justice Statistics does what's called the National Crime Victim Survey. They go out and they survey Americans about uh, crimes that they've suffered. In that survey, they find there are about 230,000 violent hate crimes a year. Uh, the Justice Department has five federal hate crime statutes. They prosecute 25 defendants each year. So... <laughs> The vast majority of these crimes we don't even document. They're, they're not even uh, reported to the police because the communities know that the police aren't interested in these crimes uh, and the police don't acknowledge most of them. So does the FBI react in a similar way when it comes to, for example, black nationalist organizations, black nationalist members, because I can imagine that there would be a difficulty in criminalizing a kind of thinking or a kind of speech, whether that is white supremacist or black nationalist or any kind of ideology. But you argue that this isn't an ideology. Why do you say it's not an ideology? Uh, 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 so uh, two questions there. Let me take the first. Yeah, one. I decided to jam them all together. Yeah, there. no worries. <laughs> uh, so, so uh, it, it's actually the, the opposite as far as how the FBI treats uh, so-called black nationalism. Uh, the the FBI. It, it, when I was working these cases, we didn't rank these different groups. That that was a post nine eleven phenomenon, and again highly politicized in the way that the, the Justice Department treated it. But starting in about 2004, the FBI was publicly stating that eco-terrorism was the number one domestic terrorism threat, even though there's not a single homicide related to in, uh, uh, activism around environmental issues. Uh, it was a very odd thing, but they would say it over and over again. And we know in, in 2017, that the FBI published a document uh, warning police departments that what they called black identity extremists posed a threat to two police officers. And the 
definition of, of this new movement that the FBI was basically manufacturing uh, was so convoluted, it took about two paragraphs to explain what they meant. But essentially, it boiled down to any person who happened to be black who was uh, actively protesting police violence. And obviously, uh, in all but name, uh, they were pointing to the, the Black Lives Matter movement. So uh, it, initially, the FBI said, oh, you know, this report was just sort of us playing with the language and trying to figure out how, how, how to respond to a handful of incidents of violence. Uh, but it later turned out that the FBI had initiated a nationwide investigation called the Iron Fist Operation. And Iron Fist was designed to identify all these black activists that might potentially someday pose a threat to law enforcement. So even though there's a, a pile of bodies you could point to that were the victims of white supremacist violence, the FBI's interest in that type of criminality was much different than its interest in, in black activism and, and environmental activism. Um, and uh, the points of ideology what I've what I've argued not not that white supremacy isn't an ideology it's very complex ideology and these far-right militant groups have very complex ideologies um, it's it's that the ideology isn't the same as the violence right what I learned when I went into these groups that there were some very hardened Nazis who really believed fervently that that national socialism was the proper answer to all social ills in this country and, and worked very hard to uh, promote those ideas. But when they found out who I was hanging out with, a bunch of criminals in the white supremacist movement, they would sort of pull me aside and say, hey, you know, you're a smart guy. Don't hang around with those idiots. They're going to get you arrested. They're going to get you killed. The violence that they perpetrate hurts our movement more than helps it. So, you know, come with me and we'll have you... Uh, Working on a newsletter that we write every every week, uh, we'll have you, um, you know, we'll, we'll clean you up. You don't have any Nazi tattoos. We'll run you for the school board. You know, that's how we're going to influence uh, the country. And, and, and they do that. So, you know, the, I think what's been lost since 9-11 is, is law enforcement doesn't recognize the, that there's the, the, the ideology isn't, isn't a precursor to the violence. And, and often it's the opposite, that violent people are attracted to the movement just because it's a movement that promotes violence in some ways, right? And that's why these the, the police reaction to these George, uh, protests since the murder of George Floyd uh, are so, the police reaction is so dangerous because by allowing these far-right militants to come in and commit crimes and commit acts of violence and not be arrested, you're attracting an even more violent element <clears throat> because there's no barrier to entry to these groups. If, if you put on military style clothing <clears throat> and grab a rifle and, and walk down to a protest, you're representing the far right militia movement, right? Slap a patch on, on your uniform and you're in. There's no qualifications. There's no entry exam. Uh, just by being there, you're part of the group. So it's somebody who who's watching this and says, wow, I, I really want to shoot somebody. Here's my chance to do it and get away with it or, or do it in a way that I'll be praised by the president of the United States and, and uh, by, by the, the broader far right community as a hero. Uh, 
for for killing people. So the, so that's why the police reaction is so dangerous. How can these white supremacists be a danger to police? Because every time people, you know, when you look at social media or whatever, people are always saying, look, the, the police are just welcoming, welcoming them in. They are saying, you're on our side. They're giving them water. They're telling them to hide in different places while they're sweeping the streets. So they must be on their side. Why? What is the danger to police? And more importantly, why don't the police necessarily recognize that danger that white supremacists are to them? That's the most shocking part of of this apparent uh, favoritism <clears throat> at these protests for me, as because in the 1990s, law enforcement knew they were targets of these groups and and treated these groups as if they were targets, uh, as if the police were targets. You know, it was recognized, and so when I see uh, police officers fraternizing with these groups at the protests, or even worse, wearing the patches representative of these groups, it, it's frightening to me because the, the far-right groups adopting the Blue Lives Matter flag, it, it's, it's a subterfuge. It's a way for them to gain influence. Uh, and you know, the only two police officers killed since the George Floyd protests started the George, the protest following the George Floyd murder uh, started, were killed by far right militants, and and for some reason the police don't see, and even that didn't change the attitude. Uh, it, it's it's shocking, and you, you again you have this the police allowing these people come, to come to protests and act out violently that could be stopped. I mean, it's fascinating that that you know the they're using this rhetoric of law and order and, and you know, uh, that, that these militants are helping them keep law and order. Most states have anti-paramilitary uh, training laws. Um, you know, it, it's fascinating to me watching these uh, incidents where the, the far-right militants will, will say, oh, we're guarding this property. Great, show me your security guard license. You know, I, I think every state in the union has a licensing procedure for armed security guards because you want to make sure, number one, they're not criminals. Number two, they're trained in how to use weapons so they won't kill people accidentally. And, and three, that they have liability insurance in case they hurt someone. Right. So so there are laws already in place that could prevent a lot of this militant activity. That the, that the police are ignoring and allowing them to break the law just by their presence there in the armed capacity that they're, they're there. So uh, it, it, it's shocking and, and I'm afraid it's gonna end up costing more law enforcement lives because eventually when there is some enforcement action taken against these groups, the reaction is gonna be extremely violent. And, it, and it's fascinating because I think the police understand that. You know, we, we have a situation in uh, Portland, where this has happened over and over again for years. And the police chief said, well, we didn't intervene while there were these uh, uh, violence between the far-right militants and the protesters because we didn't want to escalate the situation. And it sort of dumbfounding because they escalate the situation every night against the protesters. You know, why when these uh, people are, are increasing the level of violence. Are the police suddenly afraid? 
And I think it's because they do recognize that, oh, we can't indiscriminately tear gas and, and uh, uh, shoot these people with less lethal rounds because they'll shoot back. And, and that's exactly true. So you know, you're empowering a group that is, is far more dangerous than the one uh, that the group is attacking. When it comes to you were saying that uh, two cops have been killed and they've both been killed by white supremacists. You also mentioned what's been going on in Portland for a very long time. This is dating back to, I think, at least 2014, 2015, where these far right groups come in from outside of Portland and confront protesters. This is all very well known news. If you follow those local media outlets in Portland, like Willamette Week and other places like that. However, you don't see these stories on the national news. How predictable is what is happening right now? How predictable was what is happening right now in Portland, Oregon? Could have, could have you, did you see this coming eventually? Uh, absolutely. And, and it, it's shocking to me because last weekend when, when one of the far-right militants uh, was, uh, was shot and killed, uh, which is horrible, uh, there was a press conference and, and the way the mayor and the police chief talked about it w- was as if the last four years hadn't happened, right? Th- this is exactly what people had been warning you about in your lax response to the far right violence from the very beginning. And, and there was an independent police review done uh, that, that exposed that the, uh, you know, in asking why the police treated the, the, uh, far right groups so differently from the way they treated the anti-racist racist, racism groups. Uh, one of the police uh, lieutenants, so a leader in the police department, was quoted as saying, "Well, we cooperate more with the far right groups because they have more mainstream ideas." <laughs> right. right. I mean, just jaw dropping, and and yet nothing was changed. So when. The next round of protests happened and the police behavior hadn't changed and, and the uh, protests remained problematic. Uh, they hired an independent entity to come in and do an investigation. And that investigation went behind closed doors and hasn't come out. So, so you know, here we have again, you know, this violent police response to uh, anti-racism protests and the, the, you know, the protests become more violent, which is entirely predictable because, you know, this isn't the first time we've had civil unrest in this country based on uh, racist and violent policing. This is what happened all through the 1960s, as you were saying, when, when people like Fred Hampton were out there uh, engaging in, in this kind of activism. And, and those events were studied, and what they found was it was the police reaction that often made the protests more violent. And, and we abandoned the, that escalating violence tactic that the police used, and that worked for about 20 years. And in the late 90s, the police turned their back on that and, and uh, regenerated this escalating violence uh, methodology, and it's resulted in the same extremely violent protests. And, and they don't seem to re- recognize that there's a, a, a bunch of literature that they could use. You know, they keep doubling down on this tactic that has proved completely ineffective. And I, I just don't understand it because 
I don't think you can become a police chief or a mayor without being a smart person, but the literature is there. The, the scholarly studies are there. All you have to do is read them and, and adopt those other methodologies and things would be much better. So is the police allowing armed far-right extremists to confront those protesting against police violence? Is that nothing new? Is this not about the Trump era? Does this Is this more about going back to what you were saying, the politicization of the FBI dating back to 9-11? Can, is it a mistake to just focus that this is an issue of the Trump era and that we should look at it in the larger context, that no matter who would be president right now, there's a very good likelihood that we might be having this violence right now? Yeah, it, 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 great question. And, and, and it's definitely... You know, Trump is the symptom, uh, not not the sickness. You know, if you look at the way the Obama administration responded to the Ferguson Black Lives Matter protest after the killing of Mike Brown, if you look at the way the the police reacted to it with the FBI involved, uh, the the Standing Rock protest, the water protectors, uh, <clears throat> again environmental protesters were being treated as a major terrorism threat. Uh, those, those activists are still being hounded by the FBI, still finding themselves on uh, 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 security lists at the airport so they get stopped and questioned every time they fly. Uh, you know, this, this isn't something that just came about during the Trump administration, and correcting it uh, will require some wholesale reforms. Uh, and I, I wrote a book about how to reform the FBI, disrupt, discredit, and divide, taking that language out of uh, the COINTELPRO programs of the 1960s and 70s, because that tactical uh, messaging was readopted after 9-11 in the FBI. So they actually have a, a disruption strategy, just as they did in COINTELPRO. Uh, and... You know, getting to the bottom of that, I think, will be uh, a major effort that, that needs to happen for us to, again, return law enforcement not to a threat to the public, but rather to a, a public servant. And, and the, they should be serving the needs of the public, not, uh, not suppressing them. The book that Mike was just mentioning is his book, Disrupt, Discredit, and Divide, How the New FBI Damages Democracy. And I strongly suggest all of our listeners check that book out. Let's discuss unconscious bias for a second, because there's all this bias training. There's all these different kinds of Department of Justice decrees here in Chicago. We've had one of these decrees. But as you've pointed out, or as you were mentioning earlier, uh, in this post-sundown town era, it's not like, sure, there are no more sundown towns but the police continue in a way that may reinforce that kind, those kind of actions that were imposed during that sundown town era. We've talked right. to South African activists who say that post-apartheid police are just as white supremacist as apartheid police were, even though they are now mostly black people instead of being mm-hmm. white people. So they, that the, the, the institutionalization of practices within the police department cannot be overcome with just a few reforms. So what explains to you why these reforms are ineffective? Why don't they lead to a more democratic police force? Um, so, so it was interesting when I was doing the research and, and looking at the 
uh, unconscious bias training uh, programs. And, and I quoted three separate uh, of trainers who, who spoke about how they consciously avoid any suggestion that, that, that there is explicit bias, that there is actual racism uh, when they do their training. And, and I think that's a fatal flaw. You know, th there is unconscious bias, right? There's structural uh, bias that, that we've talked about already, uh, you know, and that structural bias uh, that, that affects the whole of society and the whole of the police department also creates implicit bias within individuals. And, and it is important uh, to train law enforcement agencies about how those unconscious biases affect their conduct and, and, and policies. Um, but to do that without acknowledging that there is overt racism in law enforcement as well, I, I think creates a hole that, that swallows up the effectiveness of the programming. That until you're willing to say this is a real problem and we have to address it, uh, it's not going to change. And, and part of the purpose of my writing the report wasn't to let law enforcement know that there's a problem. Obviously, these FBI reports demonstrate uh, that law enforcement knows it's an issue. It's just that it needs to be brought into the light uh, so we can actually acknowledge it and, and develop national strategies to address it. So, as you point out, still white supremacists and people who are affiliated with white supremacist organizations within law enforcement is still a fraction of policing around the United States. They're just a few bad apples. So how much influence can those white supremacists have within the police department? Do they go into the police department and then actively try to recruit others into white supremacy? Uh, they do. And, and, you know, there are people who come into the police department who already hold these views. Uh, there are people who are who are influenced. There are tons of studies about how the policing culture, uh, you know, how police young police officers are are brought into the policing culture. And some of that includes this structural and implicit bias. And certainly when openly racist police officers are allowed to remain in these departments, they can have a continuing influence. I think the, 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 the best uh, insight we have is, is research done by the Plainview Project and uh, the, the investigative journalists at Reveal who uncovered racist social media platforms that police were uh, participating in. And you know, one involved the U.S. Border Patrol. This is not just a state and local law enforcement uh, problem. It's a problem in federal law enforcement as well. And on this, uh, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of Border Patrol agents trading racist jokes and, and uh, saying things about the, the people that they interact with. Uh, and, and leaders of the Border Patrol were also on this platform. So, again, it's not as if the, the police departments and the police leadership don't know about this. Uh, they're participating in it in many cases, uh, and yet they're not doing anything to curb it. And, and that's the problem. Um, you know, there are some prosecutors now who are, who are taking a stand. And uh, the prosecutor in, in St. Louis County, or the county that covers St. Louis, um, you know, as soon as those reports came out, put all those officers on, on what's called a no-call list, recognizing that, that prosecutors have an obligation to provide defense 
attorneys and defendants if any exculpating information they have. So if they have information that would suggest the defendant is innocent, they can't hide that. They have to provide that to the defense. And that includes information that would uh, challenge the veracity of the, the witnesses they put on the stand. So if the prosecutor's office knows that a police officer has expressed racist views and, and engaged in racist activities, that's information that should be passed on to the defendant. So the defendant could use that evidence to challenge whether that uh, police officer's testimony is valid. And, and I think that would be a strong way to use the legal obligation that prosecutors have as a way of ferreting these people out and putting them on a list that all prosecutors would have. And that would make it for the police department. This police officer is no longer very effective as an investigator out on the street because they can't testify. And there are plenty of police jobs that they can do. They can work in the evidence room. They can uh, work in, in human, human, you know, the, the uh, personnel office. They can do a lot of different jobs, but the public needs to be protected from them. And, and those mitigation strategies have to be put in place. Mike, I could talk with you about this for another 45 minutes because this is a fascinating report. And I don't know how I missed having you on our show when you put out the book, Disrupt, Discredit and Divide, how the new FBI damages democracy. But we should have had you on the show for that because that sounds like a fascinating book. We've been speaking with Michael German, fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice's Liberty and National Security Program, who wrote the report Hidden in Plain Sight, Racism, White Supremacy and Far Right Militancy in Law Enforcement. And you can find the report at the Brennan Center website, brennancenter.org. And you can follow Mike on Twitter at Rethink Intel. We have one last question for you, Mike. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You point out that what is happening within uh, uh the situation with law enforcement here in the United States is that there has been a loss of public trust in justice. Mm -hmm. What happens to a nation when that public trust is lost? Is that an existential threat to the United States? Uh, I, I'm afraid it is. And, and I try not to make predictions. Uh, uh, but uh, I'm very concerned about where we are and how we get back to a, a sane and safe society. Uh, you know, there's just such political division in this country and, and, uh, and you know, and especially having, ha having spent time with Nazis and understanding how that regime came to power, uh, there are too many echoes that uh, that are quite troubling, and uh, you know, I hope that saner minds uh, will will come into into uh, play here, and and uh, we'll realize that we need to be one nation where we care for one another. Um, but we're in a dangerous place. And I also want to mention that uh, in Mike's article, he also offers reforms and recommendations, just as he did in his book, Disrupt, Discredit and Divide. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. I can't believe I didn't ask you if Joe Biden would be would solve the problem or not. But I don't know. What do you think? Um, I, I, I have 
a lot of confidence in the American public. I don't have a lot of confidence in, in anybody else. And I think, <laughs> you know, the public has to make sure that, that we are focused and, and we demand uh, a responsible government. And that's why I give so much credit to, to the younger generation who's out in the streets every night fighting for their rights. And, and you know, we need to support them. Thanks so much for being on our show, Mike. I really appreciate it. And do not be surprised if we bug you to have you back on the show in the future. Absolutely. I'd love to. All right. Take care. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Become a subscriber. And you can listen to our weekly Patreon podcast, which airs live at 10 a.m. every every Friday, 10 a.m. Chicago time. This week on Patreon, Alex, are we playing our 2014 interview with sociologist James Lowen, author of Sundown Towns, uh, Hidden Dimension of American Racism? Because it came up in uh, Mike German's... Uh, yeah, that just came out. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they, uh, just, we're all good for that. Got it all set up for tomorrow. Cool, because I remember that interview. It was really great. And uh, uh, on Patreon, but I'm going to share it everywhere else, too. Uh, first of all, I just want to say RIP David Graeber. I'm going to be posting everything that we've uh, done with him on Patreon and everywhere else. When did too. he pass away? Uh, like last night or this morning. I just really? read about it this morning. Yeah. Do you know any reasons why? Uh, no. Very sad. No. Very sad could be the reason why. Meanwhile, I'll be doing more media analysis uh, like last week when I took a deep, disgusting dive in the National Enquirer's take on the uprising. By the way, has anyone noticed that one of Trump's sources for his bewildering disinformation is the Inquirer because that's a lot more frightening than getting your news from Fox News. So this week I'll be looking at several issues of the of another far-right disinformation machine, the NRA publication America's First Freedom, which for whatever reason is randomly being sent to the person who would be my brother-in-law if Mike Gurley and I were married. So on Patreon tomorrow, uh, patreon.com slash thisishell 10 a.m. James Lowen on Sundown Towns and I'll be looking at a magazine that I hope none of you are looking at. But you can only hear that if you subscribe to Patreon.com slash this is hell. Alex, this week's question mail is how are you pushing Joe Biden left? How are our list how have our listeners answered that question? Sean M says, pointing a finger in his face and saying, Listen, fat, free health care at a point of service funded by and funded by ending all US wars, or you can expect a mean tweet. <laughs> Esther Dem says he's so far right there ain't no pushing him left because there's no place to stand to get leverage. Mark A.S. says, ask him to invest in solar power from my home. <laughs> How are you pushing Joe Biden left? Scott S. says, going to borrow Miley Cyrus's wrecking ball. Mm. Fabio L. says, starting a credit card company and calling it left. <laughs> <That's> very, <laughs> uh, damn, Fabio, that's very good. Uh, Kelly H. says, show him where he stands to the right of Trump. Martin F. says, by advising him that all left-leaning policies he wants to enact are actually centrist or right-wing, there's no law against using reverse psychology in politics. Uh, Alan G. says, Crap posting an insane amount of Trump Putin anal play memes. Really? Mike M says, leftist hair smells better. <laughs> Probably not, to be honest with yeah. you. Uh, Braden S says, the way Sisyphus would. How are you pushing Joe Biden left? How are you pushing Joe Biden left? Marco G says, by getting him a fake assistant who actually consists of three leftists in a trench coat. I like that. Rob H says, oh, just like Sisyphus. Damn, you know, two if there Sisyphus was only one here. Sisyphus reference, I would have given it to them, but yeah. Uh, Gorilla G says, sneakily substituting those stupid little cartoons inside the wrappers of his favorite Bazooka Joe bubblegum with subliminally coated Antifa imagery. And just to be sure, I would microdose the gum. Do you notice that Bazooka Joe has a face mask on since the 1930s? I'm really concerned about what's going on with Bazooka Joe. 
Victoria C says, by using an especially fragrant shampoo. <laughs> uh, Jacob J says, bullying him with snarky Facebook comments that will be read live on the air of an obscure leftist community radio show. Uh, that is spectacular, and I love the postmodern. Aaron D says, I yell at him, over there, the car is over here. He usually picks up his head and veers a little left towards the sound of my voice. Uh, Warnell says, no meaningful reform of Wall Street or police brutality, but maybe we could mandate reusable soda straws. How are you pushing Joe Biden left? How are you pushing Joe Biden left? Jeffy D says, by offering him rectal osculation as quid pro quo. Caveat says, disguising myself as his son's ghost and telling him that getting him to pass Medicare for All, Green New Deal, super luxury guaranteed income, and complete debt forgiveness is the only way he'll get into, I'll get into heaven. Otherwise, I'll have to wander the earth forever in the form of that bad kitchen sponge smell. Uh, Bradley A says, we should all think about this question pragmatically. As someone, uh, all someone needs is 70, 700 full-time jobs at once to have the finances to be able to influence a U.S. politician. Justin M. says, by proper, properly rigging the wheels on his walker, Mr. Biden could be made to creep ever leftward. A couple more. Chris S. says, I'm making a hard rubber cast of Dr. Jill Biden's outstressed hand and dangling it with a nylon cord ever out to re- ever out of reach of his suckling lips. So creepy. <laughs> uh, Dan K. says, a short, uh, sharp shock. Aaron B. says, I'm not pushing him. I'm luring him with a little tuft of hair for him to smell. Uh, Kim G. says, with a, come on, man. Tyler R. says, feeding him ketamine and reading Leaves of Grass aloud, which is maybe my favorite one. A couple more via Twitter. Uh, via Twitter, uh, Hypocrite Reader says, the promise of creamed corn. Adam B. says, threatening to withhold my general election vote in California. Neil C. says, tell him the DSA is truly is the organization truly in touch with the people. And Jan Z. says, cowrie shell truck nuts. The ones I like the most, uh, let's see... I really like the Bazooka Joe bubblegum one, like the snarky Facebook comments uh, that will be read live on the air of an obscure leftist community radio show. I like Jacob saying the same way we tried with Obama and Cuomo in New York, it will work this time, I promise. Greg's response was very well thought out, which was I was told that if we... If I would only stop asking for things like Medicare for all and be fine with no real police reform uh, so he can get elected, that he'd magically do the right thing after. So I guess by moving right, we'll move left. I thought that was really good, too. But I'm going with Fabio's start a credit card company and call it left. I think that's just that's the best answer to this week's question from El Fabio. Send us your mailing address via Facebook, and we will send you our new gray on black This Is Hell trucker's cap, which everybody can get if you go right now to thisishell.com and clicking on support. My answer to this week's question from hell, how are you pushing Joe Biden left? Joe Biden? I'm too busy pushing everybody else to the left to worry about Joe freaking Biden. I'm not going to waste my time. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers this week. And we want to especially thank those of you who support completely listener supported. This is hell by going to this is hell and clicking on support. That's where you can find ways to subscribe to our Patreon podcast, get all of our swag. Thanks to everybody who has gone to this is and has supported our show. Especially thanks to uh, Brian R. Clay. And Fareed, all for buying the new black or gray on black trucker caps. Alex, who's on Monday or Tuesday's show because of Labor Day weekend? Oh, so we're not doing a show on Monday? No. Okay, good. I don't gotta book anybody for Monday then. Annaline DeJin is talking about her new book, Freedom and Unruly History. 
And then on Wednesday, we've rescheduled this interview. It was supposed to happen earlier this week. And Caroline Turwent is going to be on to talk about her book, When Protest Becomes Crime, Politics and Law in Liberal Democracies. Awesome. And then on Thursday, Jeffy? Yeah, Jeffy and uh, working on what happens before Jeffy. Okay. Uh, we start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com with Alex revealing this week's Hangover Cure. This week's Hangover Cure is whatever the hell New Zealand writer at the spinoff Josie Adams is up to, which is apparently instant noodles with peanut butter and mashed potatoes. Disgusting. Thanks to all of this week's guests, including Transnational Institute legal scholar Neve Niveren, who wrote the Aurora Magazine article, The Deadly Politics of Colonial Borders Under COVID-19. You can find out more about the Transnational Institute at TNI.org. And you can follow them on Twitter at TN Institute. And thanks to today's guests, fellow with the Brennan Center for Justices, Liberty, and National Security Program, Mike German, who wrote the report, Hidden in Plain Sight, Racism, White Supremacy, and Far-Right Militancy in Law Enforcement, that was posted at the Brendan Center, sorry, Brennan Center's website, brennancenter.org. Follow Mike on Twitter at Rethink Intel. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon when we will be playing one of our first, when we will be playing our interview with James Lowen and we will be discussing the NRA's publication. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live stream, whatever host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. 11 on four. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor, and my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.